This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Uh, today's secret word is negotiated. If I take my time. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this week's show is just Doug the Producer and I, um, and so... Might be a shorter show. We'll see uh, what that uh, entails. Of course, we still dress up. And so uh, Doug was, you know, we were talking a lot about what we we're going to talk about on the show this week. And uh, Doug, as you all know, doesn't actually talk on the show. He's uh, reluctant to be in front of the camera, which I, I want to honor. Uh, and uh, but he was talking about how he was thinking like he would be like the the imp on my shoulder character, like he's gonna you know he's making faces at me and 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 waving notes. Thank yes, thank you, thank you, Doug. Uh, and you know trying to be that character, so he went with an, a demon costume. Only of course you know if you're gonna go with any kind of Halloween costume nowadays, you want to go with the the sexy demon costume. So um, looking. I hope you feel as sexy as you look, Doug. You look fantastic. Um, I'm feeling very Frankenstein's monster this week. Maybe it's, you know, not having a guest, uh, doing the show just Doug and I. It's got me feeling a little weird, I admit, Doug. Uh, but uh, also, I was reading a, a novel by John Scalzi, the uh, second in his uh, Old Man's War trilogy and there's kind of an extended reference to Frankenstein's monster and uh, I, I you know read the book a couple of times listened to the uh, uh, Michael Ian Black version of uh, his reading of it too which I recommend on the Obscure podcast uh, and then Scalzi was using kind of an extended meta it is an extended metaphor for a particular kind of character in this great trilogy and so I've been marinating and all that all these references to uh, the 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 creature um and so i went with this traditional frankenstein costume which of course frankenstein is not the monster in the book uh nor is he in the movie but uh that that you know we we use the word frankenstein to refer to frankenstein's creature i went with this traditional flat top you know green makeup uh version of frankenstein's monster even though we all know that's not what the creature in described in the book would have looked like um but uh no especially sounded like uh, you know he becomes fluent in multiple languages <laughs> he's very intelligent uh he doesn't go around moaning um uh, but uh but I i'm feeling frankensteinish i'm not fully sure why i think uh well, I mean, maybe we'll we'll get into it, but um, uh, yeah, I, you know, got got a lot of weird stuff going on, and I'm feeling like I'm being pulled in different directions and and a composite of different uh, parts, and uh, so Frankenstein's creature felt appropriate. Um, so as you all know, this is a show about procrastination. What's been pulling us away from our writing this week, and one of the big things that has been pulling me away is my own union work. I'm a, I'm a teacher and uh, 
had my last meeting as a board member on the board of the Oregon Education Association. So a lot of mixed feelings about that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to miss those, these really wonderful educators that I got to work with uh, who have become friends of mine. And so that has me feeling a lot of feels in terms of, uh, uh, you know, adjusting to some time away from that work that I really love. Um, and also we've got the WGA strike going on. And so that's got me thinking about writers and unions. Uh, and Doug and I were gabbing about unions and, and the ways that they work for writers in our version or in, in you know my element of this field, which is in, in publishing. Uh, I'm, a, you know, of course, a publisher of a small press, novelist myself, uh, and we don't have a union. And I am a big believer in unions. If you do work, work has value. And it doesn't matter what that work is. If your work is, produces, uh, you know, costs you emotional labor, that's, that's work, right? If your work is manual labor, uh, that is work. If you are sitting at a desk, if you are typing all day, that is work. Anything that you are doing that is expending your energy and spending your time is work, and work has value. The market determines the value of that work, and then rent seekers add something on top of that for themselves when they are not actually doing that work. And so there's a lot of layers of management that doesn't actually improve the work, contribute to the work, and get the work into people's hands. It's just the the, the layers on top. And uh, in, in writing, I mean, we're seeing this in the WGA strike. Uh, there are a lot of very legitimate concerns that those workers have uh, because they can be easily mistreated. And I think about this from a, a union perspective and also from a writer's perspective. Uh, from, from a union perspective, the, the value of your work can be determined by kind of two competing factors. Uh, essentially, the supply and demand of labor is how much are you willing to be exploited and how willing are you as a group to withhold your labor. That is where all labor power comes from. Unity, you know, unity, the ability to stand together and say, we won't do this for you for this wage anymore. Um, and, and I saw this in a couple of uh, local strike buildups of, of teachers recently, uh, where the teachers were having to convey to their school districts, look, you can't keep taking advantage of us in this way. We will not work under these conditions. We will not work in this way. And the key to the success in both those cases, they ended up settling uh, and, and, and being successful. And the reason that they had those successes is they were able to convey to their school boards, no, we really will strike. And you have to be able to not just make the threat, but have the threat be believed because you are willing to follow through. You have to really be willing to follow through. Don't make threats that you can't uh, follow up on or else you're undermining your position in the future. And uh, I was thinking about that in relation to the WGA strike. These are writers who have said, we really will stand together and not produce this labor for you for free at great expense to ourselves, at great danger to our families. It's scary to be without an income for a period of time, um, but they have made a calculation that the folks on top cannot possibly succeed without them. And so those folks will realize at some point, 
we need to be compensating writers in a way that is fairer or we all go down and uh, and and you know the, the folks at the top have a lot more to lose right and a lot less to contribute uh, in many cases uh, they, they, we we value them disproportionately um, moving around numbers is valued in our society a lot more than the actual production of goods and services so I am. I stand strongly with those writers. I am really grateful uh, for them and and the work that they are doing out there on the picket lines. Uh, and it's got me thinking about indie authors, um, in two ways. So uh, you know, on the one hand, we are doing this work on spec. We don't know whether or not anyone will purchase the book that we write or the article, the short story that we write, that kind of thing. Uh, and so that is puts us already in a very precarious position. And we know that we will not stand together. And that there's a lot of evidence of that online. You know, writers online, indie authors online cannot uh, agree on much of anything. Um, even our own mutual support of one another, uh, which is really unfortunate. Um, but our labor does have value. It's demonstrable. Like the, you know, Amazon is making a ton of money off of indie authors. And indie authors are seeing very little of that, right? Many books, and I, this is a confession here, uh, at, you know, as, as a publisher, I have published books that didn't make any money, that lost money. Some books lose money. And the risk of that is incurred by the writer and then in the small press case by the small press, right? We lose money. The author loses money, labor, time, right? Uh, when a book does not make money. And part of the way that we undermine a potential bargaining position is we're willing to do that. And that's hard to, uh, to you know, you, you couldn't go into a labor relations meeting with a, a potential employer or somebody working in an employer kind of role and say, I am willing to work for free <laughs> or negative money, right? Uh, there you go. You've lost all of your bargaining power. Uh, so instead, we do all this work on spec and then we don't stand together. And so I, I don't foresee any kind of way that we would ever have an indie authors union, which is really unfortunate because it would give us power if we were able to say to, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, whatever, you you want this money, you've got to deal with all of us in a way that is fairer. Uh, I'll give you an example of the way that Amazon, you know, sees itself as merely the distributor of our work, but that in fact they are, uh, you know, not just profiting significantly, but in a way that is uh, exploitative. They uh, they have this thing called um, uh, Amazon Kindle Exclusive. And uh, the way that works is when you are putting your Kindle book up for, uh, you know, to, to be available to readers, you have a choice of two different royalty rates. If you say this book will only be on Kindle, you get 70%. If you say, no, I want it to be available to other places uh to to nook for example uh i will accept 35 percent yeah so you have to make this calculation will i sell enough on these other platforms for it to be worth losing the difference uh and i think you know most authors that i know have you know when i when i present them with those options they're saying yeah i want it to just be available on kindle uh, some have said, no, it's important enough for me that it is available through bookstores and bookstores will offer it via ebook or they want it on Nook or, or you know, other uh, digital platforms. Uh, and they'll say, I I'm willing to lose potentially uh, uh, royalties 
in exchange for having it available to more readers, which I think is 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 laudable and and justifiable. But the very fact that Amazon can do that shows that Amazon could be making a whole lot more money, uh, or, or 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 could be paying a whole lot more money to authors, um, and knows it has done the calculation that it is worthwhile to destroy their competitors. I think it is a practice that is so abominable that it should be against the law. I mean, talk about a, a potential antitrust issue. Like you're, you're saying, I'm going to come in and, and undercut all of my competitors by undercutting all of the suppliers so that, you know, the products then won't be available in their stores. Like It's just gross. Uh, and yet, it puts all these authors on the spot where we're having to decide, should I support this monopolistic practice or should I, uh, uh, you know, stand up to Amazon and, and make my book available in more places? And so it, it's gross. Um, but the the other thing that's been complicating my, my thinking about this in terms of, you know, the unfortunate fact that there is not an indie author's union uh, that there's not unions for writers. Uh, unions do a lot more than just bringing us together uh, to stand up to our employers and demand, you know, fair treatment. That is a good enough reason for a union to exist. Um, but they also can do really wonderful things to educate, to create standards within an industry. Uh, you know, if you want to be an electrician, you're going to work with another electrician in the union and you're going to learn how to do the work in a way that is safe for you because that's the union's interest right is to to protect their own uh people but also that means that the work that they do is going to be higher quality for the people who hire electricians so you want to hire a you know union electrician because your house isn't as likely to burn down right that's it's a pretty big deal um but that function where unions can improve quality could be translated into an indie author's union. It would be really cool to say, here are minimum standards. And that gets really tricky with books. You wouldn't want to say, hey, in order to be you know, certified by some external body, this book must be about X or Y or must, must take you know, this stand or that stand. It would be a form of censorship that could be really uh, detrimental. Uh, and we're involved in art, right? As soon as you create any rules, somebody wants to bend them and break free from those. And that's good. That's that's how all art forms progress. Uh, at the same time, we are producing a product that we're going to be turning over to readers. And so it is uh, valuable to be able to say to readers, this book has some minimum standards in terms of it's going to be formatted properly. It's going to be, uh, you know, have this level of editing. Uh, it's going to not be generated by a computer, right? That we can in some way have verified this is written by a human being. Um, I think that would be really cool. Uh, and I think that that would actually improve the product of, you know, literature overall, if we had some kind of structure to do that, that wasn't just the, the big four publishing companies. I mean, that's a real bottleneck just for, firms that are running so much of the industry uh, and and doing so with an eye towards quarterly profits in a way that it, it's just very corporate. It's like, you know, old school network TV, right? Uh, uh, and the way that they used to be able to treat writers, right? If there are only four networks or three networks or whatever, that is uh, really detrimental to being able to produce a breadth of, of quality content because they're going to say, this is a show that, you know, a million people would like, 
but it's not going to pay the bills next quarter for the investors. And so there's not going to be any Game of Thrones or whatever, right? Uh, because you you wouldn't produce something uh, in that way. You wouldn't take those risks for a smaller audience. And, and indie authors serve that function uh, in, in the publishing industry. We, we're the HBO of literature uh, in many ways. Um, you know, smaller audience, bigger risks, uh, still can be really high quality content. Uh, but the, the big four are saying, we're going to put out the textbooks and the textbooks pay the bills, right? Or the, the self-help book by the person who's already got the big household name because we need to satisfy our investors by next quarter. And, and again, that's legitimate too. Like that's part of the market, uh, but they should not be the only ones. And, uh, and, and the fact that we who are outside of the big four can't unionize is a problem. Um, but I was thinking about this. I was also reading this book uh, and, you know, I was telling Doug about this, the, the a book about marketing, because that's the kind of thrilling reading that I get to do as uh, owner of a small press. Uh, and a lot of the emphasis was about figuring out your, your customers' needs um, and how you will then communicate to them that your product satisfies their needs. And I think this is one of those things that's really tricky for indie authors, for artists in general marketing your work is very difficult when it comes to art because in the abstract in the in the in the larger sense human beings need art desperately need art right without art we do not have civilization but no individual needs your art or at least is aware that they need your art until they've already received it right and so how do you let a potential customer know i have produced this product i think it's really high quality you're really going to enjoy it. You need this thing when they don't need that thing right now, right? They can get through their day-to-day -day lives just fine without my book, right? Uh, they need books. There are a lot of readers out there who will tell you they their lives have been greatly improved by books, right? They love books, but they don't know about yours and they don't know that that's the one that they need. And I, I don't fully, I haven't fully thought through what is the connection to unionism but i think there is one <laughs> and i'm trying to kind of piece that out tease that out what is the correlation between our inability to say to a, a, a potential management class you know the, your your distributors of books um that we deserve compensation we deserve respect we deserve some minimum standards in an industry uh, and and some minimum expectations, and then our inability to say to the person who is the consumer, uh, "This is a you know a high quality product that you want to have in your life." Um, and I'm not quite sure how to square that circle. Uh, th th I mean, there, there's there's I feel like there's something there, and I'm reaching for it, and I'm going if I could just figure out some kind of connection between what we need to be able to say to write not, not we need to be able to say to writers what writers need to be able to say to the industry as a whole and what writers need to be able to communicate to potential readers um you know the, the, there's there's some connection there so if you've got ideas about that i'm really interested in this i in, in this concept of a con potential connection between valuing the labor of authors, 
value valuing what they they contribute uh, in that way, and then also communicating that to readers. Um, how is it we can say you ought to invest your hard-earned money, your time, which is more valuable than your money, uh, into this product? Um, and that's that's a that's a difficult thing to convey. And I have not, you know, I, I don't do a marketing podcast uh, about the 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 magic, you know. Uh, secret that I have discovered to get books into millions of readers' hands uh, because I haven't figured out that magic secret yet. I am still casting about for a thousand different ways to say to readers, hey, I, I know about a lot of authors who are producing really marvelous books. You should check these out. So I uh, haven't figured it out, but if somebody's got a great idea about that or five or a million, I would love to hear your thoughts also about the idea of unionizing in some way, shape, or form. Um, how can we embrace some of those values uh, that unions bring to all of us? Because unions are important for all of us. There are people out there right now, one of the challenges that unions face is that there are these really powerful forces, always have been, saying to the general public, please don't value unions. And we need to think about why. <laughs> Stop and reflect. Why are very powerful people telling us not to value unions? And it's easier, depending on your product, to respond to that. If you are the United Farm Workers, who are a group of workers who are incredibly exploited, but don't have to worry so much that people will say, we hate you because of your union. Uh, the United Farm Workers are mistreated because we undervalue their work, uh, and they need to be able to you know, unionize, potentially withhold the labor. But at least nobody's out there saying, I hate food. Right. Without the United Farm Workers, you wouldn't eat. Right. Without nurses, you'd go to the hospital and die. Right. And so nurses can say, if we stand together, we deserve to be well treated. Right. And people can say, I don't like your union. Who cares? Without nurses, there's no hospital that functions. Right. Without teachers, without bus drivers, without all the folks who are in an educators' union, uh, you know, cafeteria workers, custodial staff. There's no school, right? And so if the general public says, we don't like that these folks are unionized, but we do love the, and depend on the product, um, we need schools, um, then those unions can at least withhold their labor in those negotiations. Of course, some of those powerful forces would love to say the solution uh, to undermining unions, uh, in the example of teachers, for example, is make you hate schools. They can trick you into believing you don't actually need a school. Uh, and that's this really clever trick that they try and play on people who don't have children that are school age, right? Ah, oh, schools are bad. Um, yeah. Then those folks have children and they're like, oh yeah, I actually can't teach 12 grades worth of school and all the subjects and and have a job. And oh yeah, schools, schools are a really valuable thing in a democracy. Um, we should, you know, it's basic specialization. We should not be trusting everyone to try and take care of all their children's educational needs. We are more effective in the same way that I get somebody to uh, double check the brakes on my car, uh, because we don't want everybody being the, the brakes experts on their cars. Uh, that would be really dangerous, right? So in, in those areas, unions are have, have a little bit easier lift because the product itself at least is less debatable, um, you know, food, uh, those kinds of things. Um, when it's something like what the WGA is going through right now, it is challenging to convey to the public, like, look, you need us. We're not the stars you see on the screen. We're not the, 
you know, the, the name of the movie, they wrote the name of the movie. They produced the words that those actors say uh, that the movie would not exist without the WGA. The TV show that you love would not exist without the WGA. And yet the folks aren't visible and it's hard for the general public to say, oh, without TV, my life would fall apart. Like, they can, you know, it's difficult for people to acknowledge the value of the product, even to themselves in some ways. And so the WGA uh, has a heavy lift just saying, recognize our value. Um, but, you know, and I think that that is they're writers, right? Writer, we all are in the same boat with them. Um, so figuring that out, I, I don't have any magic solutions to that, but I would love some uh, some, you know, more discourse about the way that our marketing challenges and our labor challenges are related. Yeah, don't know what else to, to say about that. So I will now go to marketing and uh, we'll go to our ad break. And uh, Doug, when we come back, uh, we're gonna gab about some other hobby stuff. Want to read a paranormal romance unlike any other? Love horses, monsters, and wry laugh out loud humor? then Sparks is the book for you. Rosie wants to tear down the old cowshed on a ranch, but the old-timers tell her not to because it's unlucky. And boy, howdy is it ever. Rosie's new world is magic. Her boyfriend talks to animals, the demon under the barn is deadly and requires a cow for company, Rosie has to save her ranch, her love, and even her dog as she negotiates an unbelievable magical world. Romance, monsters, and magic for grown-ups? Yes, please. Check out Sparks by Marin Bradley Anderson. Authors, poets, playwrights, as some of you know, we participate in an annual fundraiser for the Alzheimer's Association called The Longest Day. On that day, people around the country and around the world do all kinds of things like walkathons and knitting and mountain climbing, and they ask their friends and families to make donations for their efforts to the Alzheimer's Association to support care for families and research to find a cure for Alzheimer's. I participated in a few walks and then said to myself, Self, you are mediocre at walking and do not have a bunch of awesome friends known for their walking ability. But you can write and know a whole lot of other writers. So back in 2018, Not A Pipe Publishing put together our first Writing Against the Darkness team. And we've been going strong ever since. Here's the ask. You can join our team with a few clicks. If you want to, you can buy a t-shirt for the fundraiser, but that's not required. Then you post to your social media a few times, asking your friends and family to pledge to support you. On Wednesday, June 21st, we all hop on a Zoom call together early in the morning to say hello, wish one another luck, and then we write from dawn until dusk. 5.24 a.m. to 9.04 p.m. here at My Latitude. It's a long day, but don't worry, you can take all the breaks you want. In fact, if a Wednesday doesn't fit into your work schedule, you can do your longest day on another day before or after. The Alzheimer's Association won't turn your donations away. At the end of the day, we share out our word count and total them up and see how many words the team has written in a day. And how badly John Dover, author of Once Upon a Fang in the West, has beaten us by every year. It's fun, productive, and raises money for a good cause. If you'd like to participate, there is a link in the show notes. We would love to have you on our team. So come join our Writing Against the Darkness team and write with us for a good cause. Thank you. Welcome back. It's just Doug and I this week. Uh, Doug does not consider himself to be a writer. I tell my students, I teach high school, and uh, I tell my students that they're all writers. I think it's important that everyone who works with the written word recognizes that they are 
engaged in this same work. So whether you send text messages or emails or whatever, you are a writer. Uh, but Doug does not think of himself as a writer in the sense that he doesn't write novels. Uh, he's a reader, certainly, um, uh, but he doesn't, you know, he's not doesn't write poetry, doesn't write plays, screenplays, that kind of thing. Uh, but he is a reader. He takes in films. He, you know, we watch movies together. Uh, sometimes he uh, uh, is, is certainly a reader. We gab about the books we've been reading. Um, but I was thinking about you know, one of the things that we always get to on the show in this segment is hobbies and one of the dangers for writers, especially indie authors, is that we uh, find that our work is dismissed as a hobby. And I, I want to tell you this right now. If you know a writer, please don't tell them that their writing is a hobby uh, any more than, you know, anyone's passion project or day job is a hobby, right? It is it, it is dismissive. Um, but there is this element that I've been kind of playing with, which is when I am working on a particular project and I need to step away from it and, and you know, get some space, get some breathing room, I will sometimes switch to a different form. And so this is not a, a you know, how to show this is a show about procrastination. But one of the things that I have been using to procrastinate lately uh, is this toggling back and forth between working on novels, specifically on edits and revisions, uh, which are sometimes a grind, um, sometimes really fun. You have these breakthroughs where you're like, oh, this passage is going to be so much better with this. Uh, and there are writers out there who love the editing phase and writers who love the revision phase. And I find it has its moment to moment for me. Like, oh, this, this part's really fun, but not a show about process. But one of the things that I have been doing to step away from that sometimes is stepping into another form. So I will, will write more poetry when I am struggling with a particular prose project. Uh, and that is not exactly procrastinating, but it's choosing to do this other kind of work uh, and use a different kind of part of my brain. And, uh, and so that's been really valuable, uh, really helpful. Also, and I guess, you know, and Doug, this is something that we've talked about too, you know, uh, in our society, in our patriarchy, men are told we only get to have a couple of feelings. Like we get to be, you know, essentially emotionally neutral or angry. Right? That's about it. Uh, amused. We're allowed amused. Um, and, uh, and so when we are feeling things other than those, we have not been properly taught how to process those, how to express those, how to inhabit those. And then, and this is what Doug and I were laughing about. We really don't want to do when there's more than one. <laughs> right. And so uh, I, I think I am not alone in this. Uh, often men will say, I am feeling five things and therefore I am frustrated and angry because I'm feeling five things and I don't know how to, you know, handle mixed emotions. It's easier for me to convert those into anger because that's the one that I'm allowed to express. Right. And so poetry has been really wonderful for me to kind of hold discomfort and complex emotions in tension and sit with them. And uh, this came to mind today. I, I wrote this poem and I've, um, Kim Stafford, who's the uh, the one of the poet laureates of the state of Oregon, just a, a poet that I for whom I have a great amount of respect and and a wonderful person, and I I was I saw a reading he was doing one time and he was 
answering questions. And he was talking about how one of the great things about poetry is the immediacy. Instead of writing a novel that takes three years or whatever, and you've got this thing you want to communicate to somebody and you craft it for three years and then you put it out into the world and you don't know how many people are actually going to read it and if you're ever going to hear anything back, right? So there's not often the exchange that you want uh, of ideas that comes from that. With a poem, you can craft a poem in a day or two days, polish it up. You know, it depends uh, how long they come to you and some take longer. Some, you know, you can work on a, a single poem for months, certainly, but you can have those moments where the poem comes to you and you write the thing in a day. And then thanks to modern social media, you can share it immediately and get feedback. And that has been a helpful way for me to say, I've got this complex series of ideas that I am wrestling with that I don't know how to handle, and I can put it out there immediately. So I, I wrote this poem today, and uh, it was interesting to immediately get feedback. And uh, somebody uh, who came across the poem felt like the poem was just kind of uh, uh, cute and light, which is fine. Like the, the, the meaning of a poem is not something I own anymore once I put it out into the world, right? Um, it is now a negotiation. I have my intention um, and that is always less important than the impact, right? Impact is greater than intent. Uh, and so if a particular reader takes it in in a certain way, it has impacted them in that way. They own that, right? They get that. And I don't get to say, no, the impact I had on you is wrong. Right? So uh, they, they get that. And then meaning is negotiated, right? I have presented something and they're now saying, this is what I get out of that. And it's somewhere in between right? It, it's not something I own entirely. I don't get to say, well, that's not what I intend. This is what it means. Like, I don't, I don't get to dictate that, but I get to have influence on what it means by producing the, the first, the first uh, kind of negotiated uh, uh, position that's being pushed across the table, right? These are, this is the text. Now, what do you get out of that? And then the, the negotiation is in between. And in this particular case, this was interesting because the the, the feelings that I was trying to kind of wrestle with were really complicated for me and uh, and, and and not negative uh, inherently or, or, you know, not entirely negative, right? Um, but more complex than just, I am feeling happy. Like I am wrestling with these competing things pulling at me and with, uh, you know, this, this sense that there's this beautiful world outside and there is beauty in the work that I get to do. And also it is, you know, draining and it feels like it's pulling at me. And how do I hold those intention? And how do I negotiate the fact that I am, I am dealing with uh, uh, excitement and, and joy about the work and also it's work, right? Uh, and it, uh, you know, may come to nothing and there's anxiety about that. So there's all these feelings that I am uh, feeling. And, and of course, my, you know, toxic male impulses to go and therefore that pisses me off. Right? <laughs> therefore, I'm just mad, right? Which is not healthy, right? I, I can I can have feelings other than anger. Um, and and so I'm trying to to deal with that in this poem itself. And I'm trying to also communicate, right? So it's not just here are the things that I'm feeling, but it's supposed to be evocative. How, how are you feeling as the reader? And uh, and I'm putting all this together and, you know, trying to tighten it. And that's always a struggle for me. I always say too many words. Shocking. I'm sure you're not surprised by that. Um, and, uh, and and even now I feel like, oh, there were 
probably things I should have edited out of that. But, uh, you know, with the the number of words I put on the page, this person read it uh, via it was either Twitter or Instagram. I, I post them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, and uh, and their response was like, oh, that, you know, th this is kind of, I think the word was clever and something like clever and cute or something like that. And uh, that was interesting to then get that feedback and go, oh, okay. So the, these, the, the, the twist of the poem struck this person as clever, but the resolution of it felt slight. And that's legitimate, right? The the reader gets that. Like, I don't get to tell them you, you, you missed out. But then I got to read that feedback and go, oh, I was feeling something that was far more complex than clever to cute, right? Uh, and so I'm trying to figure out how I can learn from that. What did I, what do I need to change to convey something more complex? Or do I just let it go at that, right? And say it worked in this way for that person and that's fine, right? And so I'm, uh, th that writing as, and again, hobby is, is that dangerous term, but Poetry as an escape from the novels that I will be continuing to work on today uh, is uh, interesting because it afforded me that exchange, right, that I'm still processing. So highly encourage writers out there. If you are stuck working on a poem, try some prose. If you are stuck on a prose project, try writing a poem. Uh, if you are stuck in both switch forms you know there are so many ways that you can change up the work uh, and still produce something that can be beneficial uh to to readers and your work has value um so uh i'm gonna wrap up there uh with that as your kind of thing to think about this week all of your labor has value right everything that you are offering to the world around you that uses your energy and your time is valuable and feel that this week recognize if that's being taken advantage of stand up for your labor your labor can be withheld up to you and if you don't provide your labor in one way you can shift that energy in another way and do something valuable with it uh that that is rewarding to you so maybe make some art this week and remember no matter how much you procrastinate, I'm still proud of you.